episode 146 of the Bevan James Isle Show, an interview with Wayne Marriott. Radio team, welcome along to episode 146 of the Bevan James I'll Show, your fortnightly podcast on the behaviours that create a lifetime love of fitness, so you can get all the benefits that come alongside it. Um, I've actually had a really good interview today. I've got a, an, I was out walking the other day. I was out walking. Joe and I went for a walk. Uh, we've got a local a trail just up the road from where we live, and it's a beautiful trail. And Joe was a little bit injured, so we thought we'd go for a walk instead of a run, and we went for a walk up this trail. And we're heading down the trail, and we bump into a guy called Wayne Marriott, and his wife, I think, I'm pretty sure it's his wife or his partner, <laughs> Nat, did our group a few times in the past, our, our beginner running group a few times in the past, and so she's ran with us, so I kind of knew him to say hello to him, we kind of stopped on the street, and it turned out that he just finished some study, and I, you know, I just want, I was really curious about what he's doing, and he's a bit of a specialist in disputes management, and I just thought to myself, I know this is meant to be a fitness podcast, but one of the things I hear a lot from people is that they find conflict a really hard thing to do. And it often comes from this thing of, I want people to like me, so I don't say the thing I really deep down feel I should say. And uh, and, and, and and obviously what Wayne does, it's often conflict in, you know, in, in much bigger ways because he works with corporations and individuals. He's, you know, he's pretty specialized in this area. But I just kind of, I love this topic of, of conflict and so I kind of thought well you know while this is the Ben James Isles show and it's kind of meant to be tilted towards fitness I thought it'd be a pretty cool interview to get Wayne on the show so uh, I haven't actually done the interview I'm going to be doing the interview in about 20 minutes from now so I'm actually just kind of doing my, my intro before the interview often I've done the interview before him but today I'm not so I'm going to get Wayne on pretty soon but I'm really looking forward to sitting down and having a talk to him because um, I think it's going to be some pretty good insights. And also one thing that I noticed on his website, he's really into jail reform, which I th- or prison reform at least. Um, so I might kind of dig into that with him as well because I think prison reform is a pretty interesting discussion that we should be having in our society right now. Um, so yeah, so I look forward to talking to Wayne pretty soon. Before I do get into the main interview of Wayne today, I just want to talk about... Um, a fitness thing seems I need to do something around fitness today, I suppose. And one thing I've been doing recently is getting back into my weights training. Now I'm now 41, and I'm noticing as I'm aging, and and it's interesting as you age. I've I've always known that as I age, the way I will move will change. Um, and and it's kind of been a thought that's been based around the fact that just because I'll get older, my body won't let me do maybe what I wanted to do in the past, and. While I'm now 41, the, the the desire to change my movement hasn't actually came because my body told me I can't move how I did in the past. Because I've got to be honest, I still pretty much train like I did 15, 20 years ago. Or maybe not the Ironman stuff, but at least with, within the group fitness work that I do. I still do a lot of plyometric jumping, big tuck jumps and intense exercise pretty much every day of my life. And so... and. While, you know, maybe post-workout I'm a little bit more fatigued than what I was in my younger years, um, I haven't, you know, I still feel I can do it. Now, I do know there is going to be a time in, probably in the close future, where that will be starting to be a limited experience. I don't think in my 60s I'm going to be doing high tuck jumps maybe that I do like now. Well, that I do now, there's no way I'll be able to do that. But also, the kind of my motivation around exercise is kind of shifting a little bit. And 
it is a little bit about self-preservation and in that for me with exercise I want to be the person who can exercise in the way I enjoy for as long as possible and I have been an extreme exerciser like you know a small week for me has been 10 hours of exercise you know and for the last 20 years I've probably if you average that my average exercise per week for the last 20 years I'm probably somewhere between 15 to 20 hours of exercise a week average out over 20 years and a lot of that's highly intense exercise and so my body is definitely going to have a wear and tear factor that I'm going to hit as I get into the later years of my life and so in this moment I've just determined to myself that I want to shift the way I exercise and in the last 10 years and probably the majority of my fitness life has been very much cardiovascular based. Now I'm lucky because I started with weights when I first started Um, and then in the last period of time or while I've been mainly cardiovascular based I've always taught pump classes and core classes as an instructor so each week I normally get probably two to three hours of strength work in which is very broad but it is, it's been a really good foundation for my body. But I have really kind of been cardiovascular dominated. And that's because I love running, I love cycling, I love swimming, you know, I love teaching aerobic classes, you know, I love, I just love cardiovascular fitness. Um, but in the last moment of my life, as I start to think about the preservation of my body for long-term exercise, I see that there needs to be a bit of a shift. And I see that I need to probably shift my direction a little bit towards flexibility, yoga type of work, and a bit more focused strength work. So in the last kind of month, I've set a target of getting back into the weights room, um, you know, and doing proper strength training. Now, uh, let's be honest, there's always going to be a cardiovascular. I'm always going to go for some runs. I'm always going to do some spin classes and stuff like that in my life but it's just probably been a bit too dominated on the cardiovascular side so in this last moment I've just basically got back into doing strength work and doing yoga a little bit more than what I have in the past I would come and go with the yoga and whereas in the last kind of six weeks I've been doing it maybe twice a week and making sure I'm doing good stretching outside of other you know sessions as well and then I've been doing strength training and um I'm learning, in some ways this has been really healthy for me because if you ask me to go for a run or if you ask me to teach a class, there's no real mental effort that comes with it. Uh, I've got a very set routine. Obviously when I teach classes I have to be someplace at some time each week so my, my life is very much based around this routine. Um, I know the game of it. I'm very, you know, I know how to run a hard session. I know how to teach a hard class. Adding weights back into my life has kind of almost taking me back to the place where many beginner exercises have to go through. Because first of all, there's no routine in my weights in my life at the moment. And that's one of the things I'm really trying to establish. Um, you know, one of, the, one of the downfalls of doing weights training in comparison to going for a run is that if I'm going for a run, I can pretty much put on my shoes right now and, and go. Uh, whereas I'm going to do weights, I've got to drive to the gym. You know, it's going to take me probably an hour and a half of my time by the time I get there, get home and do my training. Um, and so one thing I've discovered in this last block of time is going back to that experience of trying to fit a habit into your life. And another thing that needs to be acknowledged is that I, I'm not that great at weights yet. Like I'm, you know, like if you if you do cardiovascular exercise with me, I I know how to play the game with of the best in the game because I just have done it for so long. But in the weights room, 
I'm still very much like you know compared to the average Joe, I'm probably not very head. But you know, if you look at the, the cardiovascular me in comparison to the weights training me, I'm definitely a much lower level. And also, I want to build a safe foundation as I get into weights. So I'm just learning a little bit around what it's like to go back to trying to prioritize a, a new habit into your life when you already have a routine and a habit that's hard. And it's just a good experience for me to be going through again because this is what a lot of people who don't have exercise in their life have to do, is how do you fit exercise in? And there's just a couple of tips that I've kind of picked up along the way in these last few weeks, and I imagine they'll be pretty obvious, but I just want to share them with you. The number one thing is you've got to make the new thing the number one priority in your day. Uh, a good example was yesterday, it was a Sunday, um, and I teach two classes at the gym, and I knew I had to do my weights as well, so I you know, pretty much had like a two and a half hour session at the gym, or maybe a little bit over that, um, and also after that, Sunday's normally my sleeping day, and so I normally get to sleep and don't have to teach till like nine o'clock, which in the fitness world, sleeping's kind of like seven o'clock, so <laughs> it's a good sleeping for me, and, um, and then afterwards, I had to come home, I had uh, to do some work, and then we had a family function, and then we had a fring at night, and then I had to put my daughter up from the airport at midnight, so I had a pretty full-on day, and as I woke up in the morning, while you could look at my day and say I was busy, the, the wait session was the one thing that was I had to put my most amount of effort into making sure it happened. And so as I woke up, I just sat down and I just thought to myself, okay, well, what's the what's going to take the most effort today? And while teaching classes is physical effort, it's not really that routine setting effort. And the rest of my day, while it was a busy day and full on, it was all stuff I knew I could manage. And so as I woke up in the morning of that day, I knew that my main priority was to do that weight session. And I think it's a really important thing when we're trying to create a habit in a new area is that it's not just trying to think about how you logistically put the habit in, which I also think is a really important tip, but actually having the, your mindset of the most important thing I need to get done today is this weights workout or my routine that I'm trying to create a habitual kind of habit around. And for me, that by doing that, I woke up, I went to the gym early because I thought it'd be easier to do the workout before my classes and I did the workout and then the rest of my day flew on really well. Now, if I'd woke up in the morning and thought, oh, I'll see how I go with my weights training today, I can pretty much guarantee it wouldn't have happened. So the first point I want to say is when you're trying to put a new habit in place is you've got to make it your number one priority on the day you're practicing that habit. Then secondly, I would say think about logistically. And, and for me, obviously I work at a gym and one thing I tried to do when I first started doing this weights routine was I kind of tried to add going to the gym more. So, you know, I teach classes at the gym, but I, for example, I add a weight session on a Saturday afternoon. So I drive to the gym on a Saturday afternoon, do a workout and then go home. Now for me, obviously I work at the gym, so to go to the gym just adds another barrier. So it's much logistically wiser to try add my weight session on top of when I'm already teaching a class. Now, I imagine 99.9% of the people listening to this don't teach classes at a gym, so you'd still have to have that thing of going to a location if you, if you want to do weights. But really think about what's the easiest way to add your habit to your routine of life. So for example, it might be to make sure you go to a fitness class in the morning, which is close to your work. Because 
logistically it's just a lot easier like i often think that when people are trying to create a habit they almost set themselves up to fail in the way they plan the logistical side of it. So that's just another quick tip. Think of logistically how I can be successful with it. And then thirdly, and this is a tip that I've probably given many times in the show, is when you go into the first section of the of building this habit, remember is that turning up is the, the main measure. And again, I'll be honest, my weight sessions right now, I, I'm enjoying them, I am, I am trying to challenge myself, but they're definitely not, you know, the most focused, crazy workouts I've ever done. And it's partly because I, I want to allow myself to develop my body safely as I try to kind of increase the load. And I want to have great foundations in my movement patterns as I increase the load so I'm safe and my training's effective. But it's also partly because I just want to feel successful early on. And so to me, at the moment, while I'm trying to push myself into sessions, really ultimately what I'm trying to do is just tick the box of did I go? And that's, you know, like last week my aim was to do three sessions, I got three sessions done. And that's that's probably my third tip is when you're first trying to create a new habit, don't put too much expectation on the experience in the habit, it's more just did I do the habit. I'll, I'll probably have some more insight on this area here, and I'm sure, again, as I said earlier, this is kind of obvious stuff, but it's to me it's really important just to reinforce those three tips. First of all, when you're trying to create a habit, that habit should be your number one priority in your day so when you wake up and think about your day achieving that habit should be number one secondly think about the logistics around the habit and and logistically how can you make yourself be successful and then lastly is the only thing you'll measure early on is just did I do the habit Um, if you have a great session in the habit that's awesome if you have a bad session so be it just keep doing the habit so just some cool insights I have to say my body is feeling a lot sore (laughs) Uh, it's really healthy to feel sore I kind of like that feeling so uh, that's cool stuff Anyway, before I get into my interview with Wayne, I just want to say thank you to all the patrons of the show. If you want to be a patron of the Bevan James Oz show, just go to bevanjamesoz.com. Patronage means that you're supporting me financially in me creating the kind of content that we get on this show. And I'm very fortunate to have some pretty amazing patrons. And I actually got a new patron this week, a guy by the name of Martin Kelly. And he heard my interview on Brett Robbo's podcast and he started listening to my podcast and he said he really enjoys. I actually got a message from him and I, I, I clicked on it and I forgot all about it. So I'm going, to, Martin, I'm going to respond to it after I do the show. But basically, Martin's been in the fitness industry for over 30 years. He's been a, he's a gym owner, he's been a PT for over 30 years and he's always looking to learn more. I love, a, I love someone like Martin, you know, because often someone who's been around for a long time can get into that place where they kind of think they know it all and they can close themselves off to learning. And someone like Martin is, you know, like I've never met Martin in person, but I've got to tell you, if I'm looking for a PT, A, you want someone with 30 years experience, but you actually want someone with 30 years of experience who's always wanting to learn. And that's, there's a big difference, isn't there? You know, there's that, that kind of, Anders Ericsson, the guy I had on the show around the 10,000 hours, and, you know, 10,000 hour rule was that kind of thing. To become a master, you need to do 10,000 hours or something. And he was the, the person who really kind of brought this idea to the world and then Malcolm Gladwell kind of really popularized it but the key thing to the 10,000 hours rule is it's not that you do 10,000 hours it's that you do focus practice hard work Um, and there's a lot of people been around for maybe 30 years in an industry and kind of haven't grown at all but someone like Martin you know who just loves learning and growing you know, I imagine if, if I could talk to him uh, to think about his evolution as a fitness professional, it's, it's, it would be a continuous thing. And uh, the kind of service and the kind of 
you know, what they could provide to the, the people they connect with is pretty powerful. So, so Martin, I actually, you know, now Martin, when you become a patron of the show, you get a nickname and, uh, and just, he owns a, he owns a Jets, a Jets gym in Point Cook and that's in, a, in Victoria. So if you're near Point Cook in Victoria, make sure you go check out Jets Point Cook gym uh, and, and say hello to Martin. And when I saw that Martin, his last name's Kelly and Australia, obviously Ned Kelly, um, which is a very famous kind of historical Australian criminal. So I came up with the nickname The Assassin, and I mean that as, as a fitness professional, obviously. When you train someone, you, you assassinate them. So Martin The Assassin Kelly is the nickname. Some other patrons we have is the powerful Punisher Paul Green. We've got Marion The Momentum Clat. We've got George Wild Bull Baker. We've got Mary I've Got The Power. We've got Ginger The Governor Dave Dave, Ginger Dave. Uh, if you want to become a patron on the show, go to www.bevanjamesisles.com. You can trip to the show, but you also get a really cool nickname. And to all the patrons, thank you very much for your support. Anyway, I'm going to get into the interview with Wayne. Here we go right now. Okay, team, I'm very happy to have a man. I was out walking, I was just saying before on the show that I was out walking, I saw Wayne and we started talking about some studies just finished and I thought, oh man, I need to get this man on the show. Uh, welcome along, Wayne Marriott. How are you, mate? I'm good, thanks, Bevan. I'm very well, thank you. So, yeah. so maybe just give us a little bit of history about yourself and your career. Um, I, yeah, so I'm, I'm, as you can see, I'm a little bit older um, these days and so I started work uh, when I was very young in the hospital, so I worked in radiation therapy. Um, so I was working in, you know, with 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 radiation um, fixing cancer. So um, that was a great job. I loved doing that. Uh, I kind of had this idea that um, we were treating a lot of lifestyle-related cancers, and I wondered what we were actually doing about that to, you know, be part of, um, you know, preventing lung cancer mm. or melanoma or whatever and uh, cottoned on to this idea that there was this public health thing called a health promoter and within um, a few years I, I reinvented myself as a health promotion person. Um, I did that for a few years in uh, Timaru and uh, a little bit in Christchurch here um, and got involved uh, eventually, um, just joining up some dots quickly uh, in the government service uh, for mediation. So I became a mediator about uh, 18, 19 years ago and uh, worked in the Department of Building and Housing. So we did tenancy disputes with landlords and tenants and um, helped mediate uh, weather tight homes, leaky home stuff. So wow. that, was, that was fantastic work. You know, I loved doing it. Um, and I, at that point, I kind of found like I'd, you know, I found my niche. Um, I've had a few jobs in that line, just with various levels of public service uh, leadership positions, and um, have enjoyed much of that work. But three years ago, I um, well, actually four years ago, I I knew I had to do some more study. I I just had this yearning to uh, understand why what I did worked, and I guess I wanted to. Um, enhance my mediation practice you know and, and just just be a better mediator uh, so that probably wasn't going to happen in paid employment so um, one of the reasons I decided to move on from my public service job was uh, to go out um, it was one of the reasons why I moved on so I, I um, went out on my own I became a contractor 
um, that was pretty scary. Um, so it's been a bit of a, uh, a mission uh, doing that, um, trying to create a client base, but also do some study. So I've been essentially studying full time uh, for the last two years, two and a half years, uh, through a university out of the United States. So I found a uh, peace building school. Um, uh, so uh, and started in a master's program, Master of Arts in Conflict Transformation. So um, that's what I've been doing the last two and a half years. And uh, coming backwards and forwards between New Zealand and and um, and, and America to uh, study, and then work a little bit, study, work a little bit, and uh, try to get some other stuff um, in there as well. Hey, so, so yeah, I'm, I'm kind of wondering, you know, because when I think like one thing I often talk about is this idea of um, wasted energy in your life, you know, and to me, yep. wasted energy in your life is when you're spending time thinking about things that kind of aren't really helping you progress or be in a healthy place. And conflict, yeah, yeah. let's yeah. be honest, conflict is probably one of the biggest wasted energies of a lot of people's lives, isn't it? Yeah, 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 it can be. Um, hey, look, there's a whole there's a whole segment of conflict which is really helpful. Um, mm. There's a lot of conflict in our lives which is normal, uh, and uh, they're, they're the that's that. Uh, there are those times when, um, uh, when when it keeps us alive. So if we're wandering around in the neighbourhood and a, and a, there's a tiger out there, um, and we we see the tiger and we feel threatened by it because we don't want to get eaten today, there's a whole conflict response around how we deal with that. Um, and we don't have a lot of tigers in Christchurch, so uh, that's that's not an issue. What what is an issue is though that we. We, we come up with decisions we need to make and we're conflicted by them. And when they involve other human beings, um, conflict drives this uh, normal, healthy change in the way we make decisions and how we relate to other human beings. <clears throat> so if it's managed well, um, it's, it's really good. If it's not managed well, then uh, we, we fall into dispute. And so conflict and dispute in my head are kind of different things and dispute is uh, not so healthy um, it, it, it also can drive change but it's more likely to cause us more stress and uh, it you know we have this this idea that it can harm one another we can harm one another with with our dispute so can you can you give us an example of the different levels so you know give me an example of conflict and then maybe yep. give an example of where it's gone to dispute um, there's I, yeah, I'll use a real one, actually. Um, in my home, uh, I don't have teenagers anymore, but when I had teenagers living in my home, uh, boys, they there was continual conflict around the mess we would make in the house. Um, so I'm not claiming I, I'm, I'm perfectly tidy. Uh, but when the boys made a mess, um, it was just like, man, can't, can, you just, can you just pick your stuff up? Um, so there's, there's continual sort of heightened awareness of being irritated can i say that yeah, yeah and and so you've got these teenage boys and then you simply want them to do the dishes you know and uh i know what's going to happen i'm going to ask them to do the dishes and they're going to be uh res resistant and and then we're going to get into an argument so the conflict is in with me um i, I want my kids to pull their weight i know that they don't want to um and then when i assert that authority over them, uh, then we fall into dispute and we argue, right? So does any, I'm sure lots of people relate to that. Mm. So what, one of the things that um, I try and teach people is that um, we guarantee the scrap 
because we then go to our child and we say, um, will you do the dishes? And it's a closed question. Um, they're almost certainly going to say no. It's the wrong answer. <laughs> so we, so we, we deliberately ask them a question. We know they're going to answer it wrong. They do. And now we've got a scrap. Well, why would we do that to ourselves? Why would we do that to our children? And so I guess what I'm saying is that um, there, there's a way of uh, asking a question and having a conversation that's probably going to be more healthy than the inevitable scrap or argument um, when you ask the wrong question. And so the question is, um, uh, 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 what's it going to take for you to do the dishes for us tonight? Um, or uh, a, who's, who's on the roster for dishes tonight, you know? And someone puts their hand up and they go, hey, oh, sweet ass, it look, uh, hey, can you get onto that now? And now we've got a bit of a conversation. So um, I'm not saying it, it can avoid the scrap, uh, especially with teenagers, um, but it, it, it just means that we have a conversation and that's about building that relationship. And I think if I was to talk to my boys about this stuff, um, it's completely likely that there are conversations I had with them as a father that were damaging our relationship because I didn't ask the right questions or I had an attitude or uh, they had an attitude or whatever. You know. And so instead of driving normal conflict, um, we put our relationship on the line. So what, so what I'm kind of curious about here is, so ultimately what you're saying there in that situation is the first, probably the first mm. point of call is to have awareness that you need to pause to find a better way yeah. to communicate. Yeah. And, yeah. And, and so then, you know, because mm. traditionally, and, and that example you shared is been mm. happened a thousand times in that relationship, you know, many, many times. So there's kind of, yeah. you know, there's a historic kind of pattern that we obviously all sit in, especially with teenagers, but in many yeah. areas where there's conflict between two people. So there's a, there's, a, there's a point where you just have to stop and go, okay, I need to have some awareness that I need to pause. I yeah. need to find a better way to communicate about this situation. So yeah. what, when you approach the better way, what should you be looking for and how to approach the better way to communicate? Um, I, yeah, that's a great question. I, I think some of it is also having that awareness that, um, and maybe not the, the situation with the dishes, although it could be, but certainly in a situation where you have a, a fender bender and okay. yep. you, you fall into flight or fight or flight so emotions or really there. Uh, freeze mode. Yeah. yeah, yeah, so you flick into this whole... Um, uh, mindset of fight, flight, freeze, and uh, it's hard to break out of that. Um, particularly if we've had a con we've been conditioned into reacting that way. Um, and so I think a key thing actually is to pause. So if you've had that fender bender, you know, um, let's just assume it's not it's not my fault. I'm getting out of the car, um, and I'm and I'm thinking fight and flight. I'm going to go up and give that person an absolute earful how stupid they were and how they've ruined my day and dented my car. Um, that's fight and flight freeze mode. Um, what I can do instead is uh, change it up a little and say, go up to them and say, hey, are you okay? Because um, or, or how are you? And you're asking them an open question, and the open question provokes a story. Um, when you provoke someone to tell a story, uh, they, they, they feel that you are empathising with them because you've just been in the same accident okay. and that empathy generates um, a better understanding and that understanding leads to a better relationship. So, and, and if you have a fender bender, you really want that relationship to work because you've got some things you need to work out together, you know. Mm. Um, so I, I make that sound really simple, uh, 
but it really works and uh, it works because we we provoke someone to tell us and give us information and tell us a story because they like to tell us about themselves so it's almost putting yourself on on the on the backward for a section to allow yourself to mm. kind of create understanding and empathy which then actually allows you to get to a better outcome because because I, I imagine Absolutely, as, as you get yeah, out of that yeah. car you as you say we're emotional we're driven um uh, yeah. you know we want to say our bit yeah. you know but actually it's actually about pausing having some awareness yeah. and, and actually okay my job right now is actually yeah, show yeah. some understanding first Yes, and and it's it's not because you're, it's not just because you're wanting to keep calm yourself. It's because you want to get the best out of the person mm. who's probably doing the same thing. Because, um, you know, you're only thinking it's not your fault. They're probably thinking the same thing. So now we have conflict, mm. and what your job is to, uh, your mission then is to turn that conflict into uh, a more positive relationship. And that relationship requires you to swap details. You know. Um, uh, not necessarily to talk about whose fault it was, uh, and that's that's why that question is key. Um, you don't have to get into talking about whose fault it is when you ask the question, um, "How are you?" Mm, yeah, mm, yeah. Mm. And so, so ultimately, yeah. if we show good understanding, good empathy, and mm. uh, a respect to the situation, I suppose, and the person, yeah. then you can get to a better place where you make better decisions around what, what the outcome that needs to happen. Yeah, that's right. Yep. Ah, yep. Okay, nice. Well, one thing mm. you hear a lot is. Um, I find it hard to tell people the truth because I, I'm, I'm a pleaser or I want people to like me. Uh, yeah, yeah. When you're willed, how do you kind of work around stuff like that? Mm. Um, yeah, that, that, yeah, people pleasing. Uh, that's, that, that's out there. Um, I, I might be a bit like that too. Uh, I guess what we're looking for in, in signals is that, um, uh, is the person pleased with us? So uh, some of that takes a wee bit of skill around, you know, knowing how to read a person. Um, I'm not sure I can give you a whole lot of information about that. I, it, some of it is is uh, intuitive. You know, we 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 have good conversations with people. We have bad conversations with people. We learn about their responses, so we we start to pick up what those cues are mm. um, in in our speech and our facial expressions. So people pleasing. Um, look, look, it might be that you know there's a, a level of um, our development as people that we go well. Actually, how important is it that I need to please this person? Yeah, you know. It's good to have a good relationship, but um, I, I need to be honest, and I need to be—I uh, need to have integrity, uh, and I'm simply not going to say yes just because I think that's what they want to hear. Mm. Um, yeah, does that kind of answer your question? I'm, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, it's a funny one because I often think that, like, it's, it's, I think a lot of us feel this, and I know myself as a leader, um, mm. I found that hard. But then once I got to the point where, as long as my intention was coming from the right place. So yeah, as long yeah. as I was coming, you know, it wasn't from my own insecurity or my own, you know, good, you know, um, that it, it was a healthy thing. Often the person wanted wanted to hear it, you know, yeah, like, you know, yeah, often yeah. you're telling the hard things is something they probably need to hear. But it's having the courage yeah, to actually I, say that, isn't it? Yeah, and I think that's right. I, I, if I was linking the people pleaser back to leadership, um, good leadership is is understanding that. You know, if the other person is a people pleaser, if they are more likely to say yes to you, um, then you simply stop asking them closed questions. Mm. You know, uh, will will you do this by three o'clock? Yes. You know, that that's 
kind of pointless. Um, hey, this is what we need to do. The question is, this is what we need to do. Uh, how will you attend to this? When can you have it done by? And then the people pleaser says, mm, okay, so I've got this and this to do. And they start thinking about this, the task uh, instead of just trying to give you the answer they think you're looking for. So a good leader is asking open questions and accepting that sometimes, actually, um, it might not be done by three o'clock and you have to, you have to go with that. You, you, when we were talking the other day, you yeah. talked about a model. Um, I can't remember what the model was called, but uh, what was the model we were talking about on the street the other day? You were talking about some model around disputes. Um, uh, uh, yeah, we, we, we were talking a bit about values. Is that, um, yeah, yeah. Does that go ring a bell? That. Yeah, go into that. Yeah. Okay, so um, I've got this thing about values where um, uh, we, we get on better because we uh, understand our own values. We understand, you know, how we function. We, we have, we're introspective enough to know that um, what our triggers are, um, what, what's going to please us, what's, what's going to work for us. But, but we, we also, um, it works because we, we understand that other people have values too. And uh, conflict goes better because we, we figure out um, that we don't have the same values. They're, we're all very similar, but we have different values. And um, the, the key thing is to, is to find out uh, what people's values are about um, rather than just making assumptions. Uh, okay. Yeah. And, and again, I, and I, uh, it's that open questioning thing again. It's asking questions about, you know, to, to, to discover how people do, do their thing, how they um, think, what they think about, and what they value. Yeah. So if I can get yeah. a deeper understanding of your values, then I can have a better, yeah. better chance of working together with you through a tough situation. Yeah. Yeah. And, that, and that's why mediation works and why it works from a third party perspective, because what the mediator is helping the people to do is to understand what their underlying interests are. So their positions are, um, you, you've upset me and I'm annoyed with you and we're having a fight about that. But underneath there are a number of interests. And, um, you know, I'd like to think that, you know, conversations, good mediations and, and resolutions come because people go, oh, I, I get where you're coming from now. It's, uh, it's not just about this position you had. It's about this other stuff. It's uh, really interesting. Yeah. yeah. So... So if you, if you can do that yourself, you don't need mediators, um, and that's great. Uh, um, just the world doesn't often tick that way, and sometimes it's good to have a third party come in and help you. And so uh, what about in mediation examples where it hasn't gone well? Like, you know, like I'm sure you've had experiences where, mm. you know, nothing, there's been no progress, if anything, it's gone regressed backwards. Uh, what, yeah, what, what, yeah. what are the trends you see in those situations? Well, I, I never ask people if they're happy. Um, but I do check in with them that uh, when you wake up in the morning, are you still going to be satisfied with the decision you're making right now? Mm. Because if they say no, then we have to keep working. Um, if they say yes, I might ask them some questions about, well, you know, so, so what if? And we ask a lot of what if questions. Um, mediations that don't go so well. Uh, I, 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 yeah, I... I did a mediation one time with uh, a room full of lawyers and uh, one of the lawyers put me on the spot and said, Mr. Mediator, if you, um, uh, if you do a really good job, uh, we'll get this sorted uh, before lunchtime and we'll all wonder what the hell you did because we've, we've actually fixed this. And I laughed and they said, and if you don't get this sorted, um, we'll blame you. It'll be all your fault. Oh, wow. So um, 
and it, it's kind of a funny statement, but I'm sure they actually meant it. Uh, and so when do, when, wow, when do things not get sorted? Look, sometimes people promise things they can't deliver. And uh, what that means is that uh, things can be quite good today by the end of the mediation. The agreement can be sound, but then there's a failure to um, meet an obligation that you promised. And uh, that, that I see that as a bit of a failure, but I'm not sure that it's the mediator's failure. I, I think the mediator's responsible to ask a lot of what-if questions. What if this doesn't happen? What if that does? Uh, but ultimately, people are in that situation because they're, they haven't behaved in a particularly helpful way to the other. I'm not saying that they're wrong. I'm just saying it's just their values haven't come together well enough. So, yeah, I, I do tend to put that responsibility of the success of mediation back on the parties. When you're yeah. t t going through mediation, what's mm. going through your mind? What are you trying to – like, tell us, talk through your process. You know, because obviously the examples you've shared yep. today is what can I think of as I'm working with somebody else. But in your world, you're kind of this outsider yep. who's kind of looking upon – so talk us yeah, through yeah, what, what, yeah. what's going through your head as you're working through a mediation. Um, yeah, that's fair. Uh, I, from the outset, I'm, I'm trying to understand their positions, what, what position they're taking against the other. Um, I am listening for the clues they give out about what their interests really are. Um, so for an example of that very basic one is uh, you owe me money. Um, you haven't paid me. We go to mediation to find out what that's about and how we're going to fix it. But actually, um, you haven't paid me. And and whilst I'm frustrated, actually, what I explained to you is that um, I uh, I need the money for my school fees or something really really important. And that that drives the resolution from your perspective. Does that make sense? Yeah. So you're looking. You you can see my interests. So I'm looking for um, underlying interests. I'm also looking for um, anything in the conversation that shows common points. So I'm going to really sort of latch on to the things they kind of agree on. Um, so I'm watching carefully when people are speaking. Are the other people nodding? Are they shaking their head? Are they, you know, are they being fidgety? What sig signals are they giving off around um, those common things? And um, the the other thing that mediators tend to look for um, is, uh, or are they um, uh, any points of doubt. So if if you take a, a, a position that this is the most important only thing that's important that can, can work for you, my job is to help you see that there could be alternatives because there's there's always doubt there. Okay. So how do you how are you certain that that's the only way it can happen? And and people can very seldom say, well, I'm absolutely certain. Um, and I get them thinking, so how else can we look at it? And, and you get them thinking. So you get them being creative. Yeah. And, and so then they're open up to different solutions. Yeah, yeah. And, and they're creating them themselves. So the idea is that I, I'm not there to fix the problem for them. I'm there to open the door. Um, if people are pretty slow at getting to a space where they can see the commonalities, I might say to them, hey, look, I've got some suggestions for you. I'm not telling you what to do. And you only you can only take these things on as your own resolution so long as you like them. They're not that's not me telling you. So then they might you know, they might listen to some suggestions. 
because um, ultimately, you know, when you've mediated a few times, you get to see situations, the same situation played out in a different way, but over and over again. So uh, some of the fixes can be very, very you know, quite common. One of the comments you made the other day when we were just having a chat on the street was your study has given you a deep, you know, you, you now see kind of three layers back. Um, yeah, yeah. And, and, and just so you, the mm. listener understands, basically you're kind of saying that, you know, you kind of knew that what you were doing was working in the past, but now that you've just completed your study, it's almost that you know, you can see yeah. it three layers why before. So maybe give me a bit more detail mm. on that. I find that quite interesting. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's it, it's quite a deep sort of concept, really. It's that it's way up there with um, the the problem that I seem to be facing with you today is not just about today. It's about what happened at breakfast time. Um, it's what happened yesterday and last week. It's associated with the the conflict and trauma that I had uh, with my partner last year, and we've since separated, and all that stuff goes on in your head. So we bring the stuff from our past to the moment, and uh, it gets in the way of um, how we communicate. And I mean, you know, some of the stuff that I was learning around, uh, you know, extreme violence and um, genocide and stuff like that is 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 that we we carry as a people we carry um, historical harms. Uh, forward into the next generation for you know and and that's why you see that you know that we're, we're still suffering from uh, people are still suffering from the effect of uh, the holocaust or from colonization or um uh it's why we have the waitangi tribunal which is sorting out land claims and it's not it's not just about the land it's about the harm that was caused you know 100 150 years ago when when trust was broken, for instance, mm. um, I'm, I'm oversimplifying that whole thing. So my apologies. No, no, I hear what you're saying. It's kind of like yeah. um, it's ingrained in me not to trust you in this situation because historically that's yeah. behind me. So then when I come to a conversation around conflict, mm. there's this mm. there's this this thing that I'm kind of sitting on top of that actually is working against us to actually get into a resolution. Yeah, yeah. that's right. Yeah, it's 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 interfering with uh, a conversation that we could have quite successfully but for the stuff that's happened in the past. And mm. it could be stuff that happened minutes ago, but it, it could be uh, stuff that happened hundreds of years ago. Well, and even if we and, just and think of, of a relationship us. situation, you know, many relationships, you know, the, the fight you have actually has to do with the thing you did five days ago, isn't it? Um, yeah, well, it, yeah, I guess so. Um, it, there's just so much more, and I just know that there's more involved in it. And, and, and so it, from my work, it's about very careful questioning around what you know what people how they think what they're thinking of what puts them back into that fight flight freeze mode um, and then find ways of when it happens to bring them out of it and, and, and one mm. thing you mentioned the other day as well is this idea of they you need to be aware that you're going there mm. yeah so self-awareness is important i think is that that's what you're yeah, talking about yeah um so i some of the more challenging work that i do is where uh, people just simply don't have much or any of that self-awareness. And uh, I, I, I struggle, professionally I struggle with that because um, uh, I'm not a psychologist, I'm not a counsellor, I'm, um, I'm, I'm not tasked with dealing with men mental illness. Uh, and so sometimes mental illness can kick in with people, the way they handle 
the here and the now. And uh, that can be uh, an, another level of difficulty for people who are trying to maintain relationships. So, um, you know, they, they carry through their day uh, the thoughts that they have that's, that is influenced by their, um, their health status, and, and that can be really challenging for people. Mm. Mm. One, one thing you mentioned in your notes to me is that you're really interested in prison reform. Can you just tell me what your thoughts are around mm. that? Because it's... Um, you know, it's a, it's an interesting thing in society, and obviously, yeah. a lot of countries have massive prison numbers, which are mm. arguably not that healthy for society. So, just tell us your thoughts around that. Okay, so I, I work. Um, one of the fields of work I have is restorative justice. So I work in a oh, field that's, where I, we. I, I, that's fascinating. Uh, we that bring. Is. Yeah, I listened to an interview the other day on, on yeah, Radio so New we, Zealand. My job is to bring. Um, victims and offenders, yeah. um, people that have been harmed and the people that harmed them together after there's been a guilty plea. So it's part of the sentencing procedure in New Zealand court. Is that in all courts or is it just youth court? No, it's, it's throughout the sentencing oh, procedure for many. So youth court's one of those areas. So that's another, I don't work in that, but that's another mechanism. And then there's um, the family group conferences that happen uh, from the, the social system, Te, uh, te Oranga Tamariki. Um, there's, and then there's the pre-sentence stuff that I do. So um, I, I think as a person, I've softened in the way that I think about uh, crime and punishment. Um, I, I, I mean, we know that there are too many people in prison. We, we have the second highest rate of incarceration, incarceration in the world, second only to the United States. And uh, I've, I've got a feeling that we're sending people to prison that aren't benefiting from being there. I, I'm not suggesting that when people do wrong that they're not punished. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is that we need to find other mechanisms that are um, healthier for the community. And, and the systems that I quite like are the ones where uh, the offender is um, having to relate back to the community or the people that they've harmed in a way that says, you know, how can we do this together? And uh, the, there are plenty of models around the world that are working quite well. Um, uh, there'll be people watching this may, may be going, well, and, and, re and relating back to a harm that they experienced at the hands of, of a criminal. And they're saying, well, I, I can't forgive and forget, and I'm, I just want the people locked up. Um, the reality is that uh, recidivism is high. That's you know people get out of prison and then they reoffend and go back to prison. Um, that's that's disturbingly high. Um, but what we know is that some of these processes, like restorative justice, reduce recidivism. So, um, in in a very uh, in a nutshell, it works. The, the the other systems work, and the more we do of it, the uh, more pressure will take off. Society. So, can you give an explanation for those who don't know anything about the restorative justice system or way about mm. going about it? Can you talk us through what what would happen in that situation and give us quite a detailed yeah. approach of so so yeah. we can get a good understanding of what that actually means? Cool. So, um, in our current system, we have a process where uh, Bevan, if you're driving your car and um, you might be going a bit fast and you crash into someone and they get hurt, you'll be charged with, a, with some kind of offence. Um, you might go to court, and at that point you get a choice to plead guilty or not guilty. Now, 
um, let's just assume that, that, that the, the, the blame is put on you and you are to take responsibility. So you plead guilty, and so the system then sends a referral to restorative justice, and you get an opportunity to meet with the person that you hurt. Okay, so uh, we have a system where we meet with the offender on their own first to find out their level of remorse and regret, um, find out what they'd like to achieve out of restorative justice, um, understand what their expectations are, and let them know what we do because it's voluntary. They don't have to do it, uh, and we want them to have an informed choice. We would speak to the, the victim in the same way just to find out what their needs are. And then given that everyone wants to do restorative justice, um, we would bring them together in a meeting that might take an hour. Um, and the conversation that they have is in three parts. We talk about the, the offence or the, the incident, uh, the crash that you had. And, and the key thing about that is that you were both in the same crash, but you see it through different eyes. Okay. So it's really good to fill the other in around what happened from the other person's perspective. The second thing we do is talk about what have been the implications. So there's lots of damaged cars, there's been injuries, there's been cost. Um, people might have had time off work. Um, you know, some of the injuries could be terrible and have a terrible impact on a wider family. And everyone gets to talk about what those implications and impacts have been. The third thing we do is talk about what happens next. And so there's, there's discussions around cost and money. And um, uh, look, there, there, there could be conversations around, um, I don't want you to do this again. So what, Bevan, what can you do so that you don't have this crash next week? And, and you might say, well, I'll, I'll take some kind of driving course or whatever, you know. Um, and, and sometimes that's really helpful to the, the person who's been harmed because they go, well, that, that tells me that you don't want to do it again and you're taking steps. Uh, so that conversation is recorded in a, in a written document, which is a report. Um, uh, the, the person who's been harmed and the person who harmed them, they get a copy of the report and then one goes to the judge and the judge uses that information to decide um, as part of the, the decision-making process around what the penalty should be. Why is it so successful? You're saying it reduces recidivism. So why is it so successful? Yep. Um, it's successful, I think, because for you, who's had a crash, we're mm. really targeting you here, Bevan, I'm sorry. Yeah, well, I'm a bad person. Um, so. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, you, because you get a better understanding of what happened to the other human being, you, you begin to think about consequences and uh, rather than the punishment. Uh, okay. So sometimes the punishment's the same. You know, you, you lose your license yeah. for a bit, you pay a fine, you've got to pay the person some money. Um, and, and in the good old days, uh, you know, without the presence of the victim, th that part of it was, you know, the, um, it was invisible mm. to the offender and it was only the law doing its thing. So this is about being accountable to um, actual people. And when we are accountable to actual people, then we're more inclined to um, do things differently, often better. It's funny It's funny you talk about this, and I know this is a completely different example, but it, it kind of triggered an experience in my life. When I was a young man, I was a bit of a sleaze, you know, for a period. Um, right. And, and, and I was a bad drunk, and so I was kind of those things that really mix well together. Mm. And I remember one night, there was a good a girl who hung out with our friends and she was the most awesome chick. She was a really awesome girl, but I wasn't interested in her in any way, shape or form. And then one night mm. I, was, I was really drunk 
and I just talk shit mm. to her, try to get down to pants, basically. Um, and mm. and I told her things mm. which were like I told her I loved her, and I told her I wanted to be with her, and it was it was all lies. It was just basically I just wanted to have sex with her, and and mm. nothing ended up happening. Yeah. But I remember the next day I realised how awful I'd been, and mm. I, and I realised, mm. um, and also that she was she was. I she deserved better than that, and mm, and mm. I, I rang her and I apologised to her, mm. and yep. and to be honest, it was one, a really big growth point in my life because it was kind yep. of the first time where I realised my behaviour and just trying to get sleazy sex was actually quite yeah, damaging yeah. to other people, and to have to mm. front up to somebody and actually because I because she she was she deserved better and I cared about her as a person, mm. it kind of really yeah, changed who yeah. I was as a sleaze after that moment. Yeah. So, is, is that person still friends with you now? Yeah, yeah. And, 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 well, admittedly, yeah. life's kind of okay. moved on, but we we had a good relationship after mm, that, fact, mm. you know. And um, yeah, cool. But it was it was yeah. just that kind of the idea of it was the first time I was aware of my my actions hurting somebody else. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. then me self reflecting on my behaviours, which made me want to shift my behaviours. And I think that's kind of you're saying that's the benefit of it, isn't it? Well, I mean, I think that's what restorative justice does. It, it, it starts, it begins to instill um, the ability to self-reflect. So mm. your situation is a little bit different than what I've been talking about because uh, your self-reflection came early yep. and you apologised early mm. and it had a positive effect. And uh, that's that's fantastic. But in my experience, um, that doesn't happen enough. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, we're not. It's it's almost like we're not teaching our children what it means to be to be reflective and accountable and and apologetic. And, yeah. and ultimately, so that's a skill we want to be developing as a society um, and developing yeah. people coming through and and the education yeah. of how to be a good good person in the society. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I I, I believe that. Um, I don't have all the answers to that, although um, I try and model it when. Uh, when someone pisses me off, um, I try and let them know in a way that is uh, uh, helpful. Um, uh, it can be a learning experience for everybody, um, and I really work on how I present myself to that person. So, um, yeah, so I, I have all this knowledge around how you do things, but I also have to practice what I preach yeah. because I'm I'm simply a human being, yeah. and I still I still get this fight and flight mode thing going off in my head too. So. Um, uh, yeah, it's, it's it's hard work. We have to. We're humans. We have to work really hard at it. Yeah, it's, it's really interesting, isn't it? Because there are common themes that's coming mm. through from your work, and and one of the common themes is to spend time trying to understand yeah. other people is a really healthy thing. Um, to to think about how you communicate yeah, is a really yeah. healthy thing. Um, to yeah, show yeah. empathy is a really healthy thing. You know, like there's these common themes, mm. and and it's and, and sadly, if we look at some of the things that are happening in the broader context of the world right now, there's lots of the opposite of that yeah. happening, isn't there? Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, we're we're keen to jump to to assumptions about people and things and ideas, and um, you know, there's a there's a tension there between the natural conflict that happens between our identities, um, and you know, there's research that shows that. Um, there must be conflict when those identities get together, okay? Um, but there's also research that shows that um, we can choose to turn it back. We can we can to to turn the heat off. We we don't we can choose actually not to engage in uh, particularly violence if if we want you know to to do things in a more 
subtle and peaceable way. So, um, of course, the big problem we have in our society is that those mechanisms in our, in our brains are really hard to um, uh, control when, when alcohol and drugs are involved. So alcohol and drugs are huge problems in terms of um, the decisions people make. Um, and, you know, so I deal with a lot of violence, um, drug, fu uh, sorry, alcohol fueled violence. Uh, and in the three years that I've been doing restorative justice, it's only recently that I could say that I've, I've handled a, um, a family violence case uh, that didn't involve alcohol. That for yeah. nearly, for merely three years, um, every single family violence case involved alcohol, and uh -huh. I'd come away going, "Wow, this is, um, the, you know, the, the the effect on alcohol in our society is huge." And I, I say that on the back of I like to have a drink. So, um, uh, you know, it's. it's um, yeah. How much of, of that is a reflection of the fact that they haven't dealt with their problems before they're drunk? You know, like the, the alcohol really just gives them a chance to, although expressed poorly, gives them the yeah. chance to finally kind of offload what they want to offload. Yeah, it, I, I'm sure that comes into it. I, I couldn't tell you the, okay. uh, you know, I couldn't give you details around, um, you know, how much is associated with the trauma we've experienced in, in our uh, before then, mm. uh, because there's all sorts of other things. There's environmental factors. There's, you know, stereotypes and the the you know if we if we uh, uh, and I'll just use rugby as a um, as an example. I don't mean to single them out, but mm. you know, in the past when rugby's had a drinking culture associated with it, um, yeah, you could you could see that in rugby clubs or in, in clubs all around New Zealand, there's there's problems that come out of it because um, of the stereotypes and the, the peer group stuff that happens around around having to drink, mm -hmm. um, yeah. If someone if someone wants to, you know, they know this is an area they need to work on. What would you mm. recommend they do? Would you get some? What kind of book would you recommend? Or uh, you know, yeah. what, what's a good area to start? If you know, if you're listening to us right now and you go, you know what, this is different area I need to work on. What, what's where would you recommend they go? Um, Seriously, if you were, if you were worried, or if somebody else was worried about you, uh, the first stop is to go to your GP. Um, the GP has access to a, a great range of things. Um, if you're not wanting to go and talk to a human about stuff, um, you can pick up a book called uh, the Blokes Book if you're a guy, um, and there's lots of information access to. Uh, different services out there um, that lead you to talking to another human being, which is important. Um, for uh, women, um, there are a bunch of organisations that uh, can help. And if you're, um, you know, if you're worried about, uh, um, you know, self-harm or, excuse me, violence in a relationship. Um, <clears throat> Yeah, Aviva, uh, Better Women's Trust. Um, there, there are quite a number of those agencies out there that can help actually men and women. Yeah. Um, actually, I, I run a, a little app on my phone, so um, it's a little search engine that you know, I plug in some details around the client that I'm dealing with, and it comes up with the options. It's called 
uh, I think it's called River, and uh, it's fantastic because I don't then have to carry around um, a whole lot of different brochures yeah. um, that, that get out of date. I can, you know, find people information that they need, share it with them or make the referral for them. Mm, yeah. Right. But, I mean, GP is important, but talk just talk to someone you trust. Yeah. It's, it, trust mm, trust mm. is key as well, isn't it? Because you can be yeah, free. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, mm. Just anything else you want to kind of say before we wrap things up? No, uh, this is a nice opportunity. Thank you to to um, speak to uh, willing listeners about things. I'm um, happy to talk to people anytime about this stuff. I can probably wrap it on about it uh, oh, no, endlessly if people want to. But um, uh, yeah, I, I think this is for me a, a real calling. Um, uh, you know, we talked earlier about the studying. Um, you know, I, I I totally didn't get how difficult it was going to be. I knew it would be hard, but it was a lot harder than I thought it was going to be. But as a consequence, it was more worthy, and I got so much more out of it. And uh, um, I would just encourage um, uh, older people, particularly, to um, don't don't delay that. If you're thinking about, man, I need to upgrade that bachelor's I got when I was 21 um, or whatever, go and do some more education because uh, um, the, the world of learning is fantastic and it makes you think. And uh, especially if you're in the helping agencies, it, it, it actually helps you develop new skills and abilities to help people, which I'm thrilled about. Yeah, I totally agree. I, mm. one, one thing I've learned in this last moment of my life is the deeper understanding I have, the, the, the better I can live life, you know, and so, you mm, know, and especially mm, in mm. specific areas. Uh, people wanna, if people want to work with you, they can go to waynemarriott.co.nz. I'll put a link to that in my, on my Thank show you. notes. Um, Thank you. And uh, thanks for your time, mate. It's really cool to kind of talk about a subject that's pretty important. Thank you. Thanks, Bevan. Alrighty, I think that's pretty much the gist of today's show. Uh, hopefully you got a lot from Wayne's conversation. Um, just some interesting stuff, isn't there? I, kind of being the middle person between conflict um, and ultimately trying to help people get to a place where they have better outcomes for everyone involved. And I kind of loved a lot of the messages he had around there, around being aware of, you know, taking a moment, having some self-awareness, trying to create understanding, you know, in, in the communication so you can show some empathy and actually get to a place where ultimately you're both trying to work towards a better outcome together and it's just it's an area where many people struggle uh and hopefully you guys got some pretty good insight there from wayne if you want to check out his website it is wayne let me pull up my little show notes here it is waynemarriott.co.nz and i'll put a link to that in the show notes bevanjamesisles.com i'm gonna pretty much wrap it up uh i got one more show before christmas uh, and then i've got a really cool interview lined up it won't be till after christmas i'm going to be doing it before christmas um but with a very special interesting story so be look out for that one but anyway i'm gonna rock on uh you guys have a wonderful couple of weeks i'll see you in a couple of weeks time if you want to become a patron of the show go to bevanjamesisles.com to support what i'm doing you want to email me it's bevanjames at gmail.com uh spread the word about the show tell your friends your family give give the show as a christmas present to someone in your life anyway that's me i'll see you guys in a couple of weeks time